Welcome back to another episode of Hot Take Time Machine. Theo and Ethan coming at you from opposite coasts of the United States. It's a little different though right now. I mean, it's 70 degrees and sunny here in suburban Los Angeles, California. And I understand you you guys aren't having the same uh, nice weather over there, are you? Yeah, no, I mean, it was like 50 degrees on like Tuesday. And then since then, it's just been snowing basically nonstop for the last like two or three days. So, yeah, I mean, I wish I was out there playing golf in that sunny weather. But instead, I'm just shoveling the walkway and driveway as many times as I can before the snow piles up too, too much. But, you know, I mean, we're getting to the back end of winter. So hopefully that'll die down soon, you know. Yeah, light at the end of the tunnel. Anyways, Ethan. This past weekend was UFC 258, marquee mm-hmm. matchup here between uh, Usman and Burns. Kamaru Usman, the heavy favorite, ended up taking the W, I believe, as a was it third round? Yeah, yes. third round knockout. Uh, mm-hmm. So retaining his title, he continues to affirm his greatness in the UFC. So why don't you give everyone a little recap of this fight, and then we'll get into a little bit what's next for Usman and UFC in general. Yeah, sure. Well, so, I mean, just to start, of course, I was right. You know, I mean, if everybody wants to refer back to the wager wire from last week, I picked uh, Usman. No surprise, of course, as you said, he was a <laughs> pretty heavy favorite. I mean, he's he's getting up there in terms of potential GOAT status or at least close to it in terms of, you know, the welterweight division. And, and it was just basically what everybody, I think, expected. You know, Burns actually did come out a little bit stronger than I think everybody was anticipating. I mean, to be honest, I thought that Burns had Usman on the ropes uh, a little bit in the first round. He was really swinging hard. You know, he was landing a a few significant strikes that, that, I mean, they were clearly not, not hurting Usman, but they, they made him sort of pull back and be a little bit more calculated than, I think he was even expecting, but again, you know, tale as old as time, Usman's durability, his endurance, his perseverance, he's just able to weather that whole storm and, and uh, get the early TKO in the third round. But it, it was just an all around impressive performance. I think for both fighters, you know, Burns is still a very solid fighter. I mean, he held his own against Kamar Usman, who is one of the greatest MMA fighters currently alive on the planet. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I was impressed impressed with Usman I mean this is a this is a formidable opponent no doubt and if you want to be the best you have to beat the best and and he was able to do it with that TKO in the third round so credit to him improves he improves his uh professional record to 18 and one and you know that's also a 17 win streak which is the longest in welterweight history I mean it's it's pretty damn impressive that's overpowered (laughs) yeah yeah he he's a monster i mean i'm excited to see who he ends up fighting next for sure and of course i think you know the more he builds this win streak and this pedigree the more people are going to have to start taking notice and realizing you know just how great the ufc is in general in terms of its ability to produce 
uh, legends and stars like this that might not be of the you know notoriety of a Khabib or McGregor. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think also, I mean, you got to assume that there's going to be some more, you know, big ticket fights on the docket for Usman in 2021. Just, you know, even not looking at, you know, the scope of the rest of his career, but just this season and this year. I mean, he there's been a lot of talk, you know, he was sort of called out Jorge Masvidal after this fight. And it seems like everything Ooh. that he's said and what Dana White has been sort of alluding to is that that fight could end up happening a little uh, rematch action, uh, considering the fact that Kamar Usman beat Masvidal uh, in July of 2020 when they were uh, fighting in the bubble. So, uh, you know, of course, nothing set in stone, but I think just all the chirping that's been going back and forth between the two of them and the fact that that obviously would be one of the biggest fights of the entire year for the UFC makes it a no brainer in my eyes for Dana White to to put that on the schedule at some point, maybe in the summer or whenever, who knows, of course, you know, everything's so fluid with the UFC, but regardless, I think that would be a really, really exciting fight and definitely something, you know, worth uh, bringing up as we sort of wrap up a little recap of, of the Usman Burns fight, you know? All right. going to switch gears now, Ethan, another major kind of non-traditional sport, that we're going to bring to you guys here in a, in a championship context. We got mm-hmm. some tennis coverage. Ethan, I'm not really even sure if we've mentioned tennis beyond kind of our conversation with Ted back then, but we're getting to the major season a little bit here. You know, we got the Aussie Open and the French Open soon, Wimbledon following after that. Australian Open, though, is into its final stages here. Uh, we're going yes. to bring some analysis coverage for you guys about the women's semifinals, men's semifinals, and then kind of into the uh, final mashups here we got. Looking ahead for us in the next couple days. So, Ethan, let's get into some of these uh, semifinals, what uh, kind of transpired here between some beasts here. We're down to kind of, you know, the best of the best in the Aussie open bracket. And let's just right out with it. The biggest match, perhaps, of the entire tournament on either side of the bracket was Naomi Osaka of Japan, number three ranked player in the world against. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. She's, she's kind of under the radar. Um, this American tennis player, Serena Williams. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that. Oh, right. her, I know her sister's really yeah, good. She, but... Yeah. Her sister's pretty cool. Uh, anyways, Ethan, what were some of your takeaways <laughs> from this match, which Osaka won in straight sets? Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head there. This was, I think the biggest match, at least in terms of billing of the entire tournament. Uh, obviously you have, the I think bona fide goat. It's tough to really dispute it, at least in women's tennis, with Serena going up against. You know, it's it's the Jordan Lebron kind of kind of dynamic, except Osaka's even younger than that. You know, it's kind of even closer to a a Brady Mahomes type deal. But Osaka obviously was able to overcome Serena in straight sets. She won six three and then uh, six four. The thing that really impressed me with Osaka was just how resilient she was even with the shakiness that her of her serve you know especially in that first set and also uh, at one of the breaks in the second set too yeah she really wasn't serving that well it was a bunch of double faults which yeah. is kind of uncharacteristic for her but she's still just she's so even keel her demeanor is unmatched and and she was able to get it done in an impressive way i mean the the one thing that really just shocks me about watching her every single time is the placement of some of these shots, like like the backhands, especially in this match specifically, 
it's unreal. Like, yeah. like she can put that ball wherever she wants and it's almost always going to be in play. Like it, it's incredible. Yeah. In this one, you know, my, my kind of lasting impression uh, as someone who, you know, played tennis for a long time and I, I Serena is what a probably my favorite female athlete who's ever lived personally. I mean, she is just beyond impressive what she is accomplished in her career up to this point but i mean osaka is is literally the an embodiment of this mamba mentality that defines yeah. greatness that serena once harnessed at osaka's age because you know you you mentioned like osaka did have some shakiness you know this wasn't a complete domination on her part even though of course she won uh you know in, in straight sets it wasn't like she out overpowered serena necessarily the entire time but what I really notice is almost like a kind of metaphorical changing of the guard in this kind of, you know, defeat of Serena Williams by Naomi Osaka was that Williams didn't capitalize on these moments where Osaka was very vulnerable and would have let, you know, a younger Serena into the match. I think uh, something that really encapsulates the, the, you know, the mama mentality persona of a champion, like, Serena when she was younger or, or, you know, I guess Osaka's experiencing now is mm-hmm. ability to, you know, demonstrate resilience and really rebound from, you know, faltering in that match. And if anything, Osaka was the one who showed the resilience when she was kind of faltering. Like you mentioned, she had a, you know, bad streak. There were some double faults. She yeah. went down actually in the final set, or excuse me, she was up three, one on the final set and then surrendered that lead. So I believe it was, three, three. And then I think Serena got one more game on the board, but then Osaka went three, one to end the match and won seven straight points to close out that W. So just that, I think mentality by Osaka is so impressive by, you know, someone who's 23 years old, like we may not have even seen Osaka's best yet. You know, she could go on a Serena run later in her career. So uh, obviously, you know, very entertaining match, even though it was a little tough to see the goat kind of be, uh, you know, beaten down by someone who's, so much more fluid and composed when she was, you could really show, she was really showing signs of kind of uh, her age as compared to this, you know, lightning fast, uh, you know, airtight 23 year old. So obviously props to Osaka there, but now that we know Osaka will be competing in the final this weekend, Ethan, why don't you tell us a little about who she's going to go up against? Yeah. So, I mean, just before I, I move on to that other semi quickly, one other thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, all the speculation around, oh, was that Serena's last Australian Open? Obviously, she like walked off the court with like her hand on her heart, like saluting the crowd. And then she yeah. she broke down in tears for whatever reason during the press conference afterwards. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But again, like you like you were saying, just the changing of the guard and really, uh, you know, ushering in a new era of tennis greats in women's tennis. I mean, Osaka's right there and, and you got to expect her to, you know, really show out strong in this final. But now moving on to the other semi and who she'll be playing, she'll be facing Jen Brady, who. Uh, she beat Muhova, uh, uh, Carolina Muhova, in six not straight sets, but she, you know it was still an impressive win nonetheless. Uh, Jen Brady is a little bit older than Osaka, I think by like a year or two, but she still doesn't have yeah. the same pedigree in terms of uh, Grand Slam success that Osaka does. Of course, she's never even been to a final of a uh, women's Grand Slam singles title before. Um, still, though, she. 
I think will have at least an okay chance. I mean, she, she had 30 unforced errors against Mahova, which she just simply cannot do if she wants to have yeah. any <laughs> chance against Osaka. I mean, that's rough. And that was through two sets also. Um, but she was able to fight off her, uh, her opponent's comeback. And, and I think the thing that everybody likes about Jen Brady so much is just the power behind her serve. I mean, when her serve is working, it's lethal, you know, and that's, that's kind of what you're going to need to have happen if you want a chance against somebody as dominant as Naomi Osaka. Uh, but, but still, you know, I, I think it'll be an exciting match. They're, they're uh, one and one all time on, on hard court. Osaka leads two one all time in their lifetime head to head matchup. Uh, but you know, it, looking back to the 2020 U S open semis, that was what Naomi Osaka called, uh, one of her greatest matches of all time. And that was yeah. the last time that yeah. she played against Jen Brady. That was obviously an incredible match to watch. Um, and you know, I'm for this, I, I, it's difficult to really sort of give Osaka anything other than the benefit of the doubt and that she's just so much more dominant and has proven that she can already win at the highest level possible with Jen Brady. You know, it's her first appearance uh, in a Grand Slam final for the 25-year-old. You really still don't know if she's going to sort of rise to the occasion with the crowds finally back in in Australia for the uh, Aussie Open as well. But still, you know, uh, Jen Brady is a solid player, but Osaka, she's just been as steady as as ever. I mean, beating Serena Williams in such a convincing way is proof of that, I think. Um, I'm, re- I'm really interested to see, though. I think that uh, the first serve percentage for both of these women, obviously they're both, you know, big, powerful uh, players. The first serve percentage is going to be key. I think Osaka was at like 50% um, in the semis, and then Brady was at 45 or 46. Like the, It's going to have to be higher for both of them if they want a chance to win just because you kind of have to match your opponent here. But I- I'm excited for this match, for this final. I think it's going to be – really interesting to see if uh, we can sort of replicate that 2020 U S open semi. And if they can, I mean, we should be in for a, I think a really, really competitive and tight uh, match. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I am a believer that Osaka is significantly at least on paper. I mean, I, I'm not ready to say obviously, you know how they match up because I think tennis is a very unique sport in the sense right. that, uh, you know, the opponent often plays up to their competition and, you know, the the favorite sometimes plays down to their comp- competition. So that's not to say that, mm-hmm. you know, Osaka's, I, I just am going to chalk this up as a win for Osaka right away, but she is the heavy favorite. I mean, I'm looking at the odds right, right now. Uh, she's minus 500 and Brady is, is plus 375. So yeah. obviously the books are really liking Osaka here, you know, just to kind of put some respect on Brady's name. She, even though, you know, she doesn't have that same kind of major, champion pedigree that osaka has i mean she is an excellent player in her own regard and she has really arrived you know she's yeah. she won her first wta event last year you know she's already shown that she can have success on this major circuit obviously you know you mentioning uh her going to the semifinals in the u.s open last year so mm-hmm. you know i think brady even though like she isn't perhaps you know the someone who we expected as as a contender between between Osaka, you know, perhaps we thought Williams was going to be able to thwart her championship uh, Australian Open championship quest this year. But, mm. you know, I got to show respect for Brady because she's the kind of person who just the resilience that she's demonstrated so far right. in her career 
just, you know, she was a professional tennis player for a long time uh, after she won the national championship with UCLA in 2014, mm-hmm. which is how she kind of first got her exposure to, you know, the attention and notoriety of being an elite, you know, international national uh, caliber player. But for a while, you know, she wasn't, she was in the throes of the Serena and Azarenka and Halep and Sharapova, you know, era of dominance in women's tennis. But now, you know, she's really coming to her own as a 25 year old, you know, she's just getting into her prime. And one more thing I want to mention about Brady going into this matchup is that going into the tournament, just the Australian open in general, she spent 14 or 15. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how many, a long time, days, whatever it was. But locked up in her hotel room for 24 yeah. hours a day. She didn't even get to do anything besides work out, really. She barely got to get on the court and play tennis prior to this tournament because someone on her flight from America tested positive for coronavirus. So she had to wait out that period. And yep. you know, just the resilience that she's shown without having that same kind of you know preparation, you know, getting informed like most of her uh, other opponents have in this tournament is just really impressive. So even if Brady does end up Getting ousted by Osaka, I think, you know, she's really made the most of her opportunity in this 2021 Australian Open. Yeah, no doubt. Also, just like thinking about, you know, sort of what she's up against in Osaka. Of course, Osaka's younger, but I mean, all three Grand, Grand Slam finals that she's played in, she's won. The, I mean, the U.S. Open twice and then the Aussie right. Open in, in 2019. Like, like Osaka, I mean, we already know, you know, she, when she needs to step up, she can and and will do so. And so for for Brady, I think there's kind of a lot less pressure on her and, and a lot less to lose. Whereas for Osaka, I, like you said, you know, Vegas is heavy on her for good reason. And she would be kind of it would be an upset. I mean, I, I don't think it would be a crazy upset just because Jen Brady is still obviously, like you were saying, a very solid player. Her resilience, I love you brought up just because we saw that even in the semis of this tournament. Yeah. But ultimately, I think just Osaka's Osaka's tenacity and the way that she locks in, like you were saying, with that Mamba mentality, I think it's unmatched right now. Her mental fortitude is incredible. Yeah. And for that reason, it makes it hard for me to pick against Osaka here. I mean, I think she's going to win, uh, you know, and get her second Australian open title. But again, you know, I think we're in for a really, really solid match against two of the most powerful young players in women's tennis today. So now Ethan, let's move to the men's side of the bracket. Some perhaps more familiar uh, household names uh, in this final. We got Novak Djokovic who in his own right, has become goaded as a tennis player. I think you can safely say he's on that Mount Rushmore against Daniil Medvedev, who is the number four ranked player in the world at the moment, a guy who's young, explosive, strong. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about how these guys kind of got to this final, Ethan, and perhaps what you're kind of seeing in this matchup? Sure. So for we'll start with Djokovic. I mean, obviously, you know, he won in straight sets against Karatsev, but uh, made only one forced error. One on forced error in the entire That's match. Absurd. Which, which to put that in perspective, also Djokovic suffered like a an abdominal injury of some kind that he hasn't really spoken about at all, and nobody really knows for sure. But 
he he did get hurt at least to a certain extent during this tournament and to, for him to still be playing at such a high level whereas he's beating guys in straights in the semis and not making virtually any errors at all it's just a testament to how dominant of a player he is and has been for his entire career um and you know the other big storyline with him going into this this final is going to be that chase, you know, to sort of try to match Nadal and Federer. Obviously, Djokovic is at 17 Grand Slam titles right now, including eight at the Aussie Open, whereas uh, Federer and Nadal both have 20 apiece. Um, the, 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 you know, Djokovic can really move within striking distance of potentially surpassing either one of these guys if he can beat Medvedev uh, in in this final. But again, you know, on the flip side, looking at Medvedev, another guy who has just been absolutely dominating in this entire tournament. I mean, that match against Rublev in the quarters was electric. It just goes to show, you know, the fact that Medvedev, you can't get a ball by him at all. I mean, his reach at, with the 6-6 frame, you know, and his his sort of quickness, he, he returns everything. Um, and then we saw that again also against Tsitsipas too. You know, Tsitsipas, who had just beaten Rafael Nadal, which, I mean, that he's no slouch either, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. So, you know, Medvedev is is tried and tested, and, and uh, they're pretty close all time. I mean, Djokovic yeah. 4-3 in their head-to-head matchup, which you can't really say about too many tennis players outside of the big three, you know, having a fairly even head-to-head career matchup against one of them. I mean, Medvedev is one of those few guys on that short list. And the last time they met, at the Australian Open, Djokovic won, of course, but still, I, I think this is going to be much more of a uh, toss-up, if you will, than the on the women's side, just because you have Djokovic. You know, he's everybody knows what Djokovic's deal is. I mean, he's he's quite literally one of the best players of all time. Um, he, even with this injury that everybody doesn't really know about, but it's clearly at least something to at least keep an eye on. He's yeah. still playing at such a high level. But then on, on the flip side, Medvedev still is playing at a high level and healthy. And in that match, the match that really was impressive to me was against Rublev. I mean, he tired Rublev out to the point where he's literally like collapsing on the court. Right. And Medvedev, like Medvedev was definitely tired, but not gassed. Like he's, his endurance, I think, will play a key role in this one and just, you know, trying to wear down Djokovic. I think we're in for some really long points, uh, you know, tons of really long rallies. I mean, there was a 43 shot rally against Rublev and then like a 30 something against Tsitsipas Dang. too with Medvedev. Like this, this will be, I think a really, really, really good match and probably the best we could have asked for in this Australian open. Yeah. I'm so hyped for this to give people some context. You know, when you see, uh, you know, any member of the big four, I think as tennis viewers, we have a tendency to, to do this whenever you kind of see a, a Djokovic, Nadal, a Federer, or I guess, I mean, Murray hasn't played in a while, but back back in the day, uh, you right. know, those are the guys who are the caliber where you see their name on, you know, uh, on the sheet for this final matchup on the program. And it's like, oh, okay, well, like, obviously they're going to be favored. You know, they're, they're going to dominate and win. But the books are giving minus 110 odds for both. Like, this is a basically toss-up by the stats if you kind of look at it. I'm really glad you mentioned how Medvedev has almost been – Djokovic's kryptonite in a way and I think yeah way to kind of uh approach this this comparison between the two is that Medvedev is reaching the the prime of his career you know he's Mm -hmm. like 25 26 
25, yeah. But he's stringing together uh, deeper kind of runs in tournaments, you know, a lot more wins. He's building confidence against some of the best in the world. He's won three out of his past four matches against Djokovic. Like, people, this yep. is very much uh, another case of kind of, you know, someone super young beginning to kind of chip away at the kind of unbreakable prior kind of stature of a guy of the GOAT kind of status that Djokovic is in this final matchup. So I like the way you described it. You know, I'm so looking forward to this. I'm really interested to see, you know, how kind of the energy kind of plays off each other between these two guys, Djokovic and Medvedev, because I think Djokovic, when he was Medvedev's age, was the one who was kind of billed as this guy who had high endurance, was aggressive, you know, a towering figure who could just, you know, serve some, you know, serve his opponent out of the match. But nowadays mm-hmm. it's Medvedev who's kind of uh, displaying those tendencies a little more. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how Djokovic's injury plays into this because if Medvedev is, you know, stringing together these long ass rallies and Djokovic is running up and down the baseline and right. taking him up to the net, then Medvedev's going to have a great shot to win this just based out of tiring his opponent out, an opponent yeah. who, uh, you know, has been seasoned in major finals and knows what it's like to compete in these three and a half hour plus matches. Mm-hmm. But we just don't know what Medvedev is bringing to his game in, you know, the context of a Grand Slam final at this point of his career when he's literally in his prime, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, also another thing to bring up is that Medvedev is, uh, again, like you said, he's so much younger. And with that, he is still searching for that first Grand Slam yeah. title course Djokovic you know he's been there a million times uh but yeah I I think I think Medvedev's style of play as sort of like a defensive guy along the baseline who who is never gonna really give an inch in terms of you know an unforced error or or sort of bailing his opponent out that's gonna you know pose a problem for Djokovic just because he does have that reach I mean the 6-6 frame like I was saying too like he he has the ability, I think, to beat Djokovic more so than a lot of other players uh, in this for in sure, this man. tournament in this sure. field. So I'm really excited for this one. And then uh, again, also just looking at it in more of a historical context, the pressure is on for Djokovic uh, f- for, of course, the the total Grand Slam title count. Obviously, he's at 17, like I said, but also he's trying to become the second male player to win nine plus titles at one venue ever. Nadal's the only other one who's done that. Of course, Nadal Ooh, and Clay. Yeah. He's won 13 at the French Open, so I mean that's kind of unmatchable. But you know, Djokovic can can sort of join that class. He's still a ways to go to get to that 13 number, but. But that would be impressive nonetheless. I mean, they both love the hard court, and and I think it's just going to be an incredible match. I, I can't overstate enough how much I'm looking forward to it. But in terms of a prediction for this one, because it's such a toss-up, like I was saying, like I think I legitimately think either guy could win, and no, I don't think anybody would be surprised. But I, I'm going to give it to Medvedev here. I think okay. he wins a tight like five set match, you know, and, and goes on to capture his first probably of many grand slam titles. I mean, it's, it's been a little elusive, uh, you know, to this point in his career, he's only gotten to a final one other time at the U S open in 
2019, I believe. But yeah, I think I think the time is now. I mean, he's playing at a high enough level and at a dominant enough pace to really overcome the big three once and for all. So I like Medvedev a lot in this one as much as it sort of pains me to ever bet against a Djokovic or a Nadal or a Federer. I, you know, I have a feeling that Medvedev might have what it takes to, to sort of get over that hump now. Yeah, I can't really fault you for taking him there. We basically just spent this whole time describing the edge that Medvedev has over Right. <laughs> I'm going to be that guy. And I'm going to take Djokovic in this one. All right. And it's solely based on this. You can say it's a flawed criteria and like arbitrary or or whatever, poorly constructed. I just don't think that the last Australian Open that Djokovic wins is going to be 2020. I think he's going to perhaps sack a few yeah. more, whether it's this year or or next year or the year after. I just... I think that we're getting to a point where these are starting to be uh, major championships that are more icing on the cake as opposed to kind of, uh, you know, the the blue chip kind of uh, trophies that define, you know, the greatness of his career. I think we're getting to the point where uh, a new generation of tennis stars is coming up and we're going to start seeing a lot less of kind of the of the Federer's, Nadal's, Djokovic's in the finals. And I think Djokovic knows this. I think he knows that he's getting up there in age. And while he's still at this uh, caliber of skill, you know, it honestly goes back to, uh, uh, you know, the, the Tom Brady argument. It's like you, he mm-hmm. doesn't know how much longer he's going to be playing. So if the GOAT still has that GOAT kind of secret sauce there in the tank and can still physically – you know, contend with someone who's in their prime, like uh, I guess in this analogy, Mahomes to Medvedev, uh, <laughs> why not leave it all on the court and try to right. add one more uh, as kind of icing on the cake, so to speak. So I think it's going to be a great match. I think it could go uh, five sets between these guys, but I think it's going to be uh, the will to win and that uh, kind of heart of a champion uh, that leads Djokovic to the dub in this regard. And hopefully we'll get some kind of rivalry matches between the two of them in the future, whether it be 2021, 2022, you know, because we don't know how much longer we're going to get to see guys like Nadal, Djokovic, Federer competing on this stage. Yeah, definitely. Regardless, though, I think we're in for a real treat with both of these on the men's and women's side. And I'm just so excited to to keep an eye out to see what really transpires in each match. Because again, you know, you grand slam final. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, especially, you know, since we haven't really had something to look forward to like this for a while. And, you know, the COVID stuff has also played a major part, but uh, just one final note uh, on Medvedev before we move on, you know, just so I can sort of make my case for my pick a little bit more. Medvedev has only dropped two sets in this entire tournament up to this point. Yeah, Djokovic has dropped a couple more uh, to various opponents. So, you know, if, if Medvedev is playing at, at this high of a level, you got to expect he's going to continue to do it even on the biggest stage probably of his career to this point against Novak Djokovic. But regardless, I think we're we're in for some great matches and uh, can't wait to see what happens. But let's keep it rolling right into the NBA now. Of course, we talked about the NHL last week and sort of highlighted some teams that we think are legit uh, cup contenders. I think it would only be prudent to do the same thing in the NBA this week. You know, of course, uh, we're still only... Uh, not a super significant amount of the way into this season in the NBA, but still there are some teams that are starting to earn themselves as uh, you know, a top four or five seed in their respective conferences. And some that have sort of fallen 
from where they were last year. So let's go through and how about uh, highlight maybe a few teams that we think are either contenders or pretenders and talk about them. Theo, you want to start us off with maybe the Phoenix Suns? Yeah. So, you know, just kind of going through surveying the league, who can really, I think for me, at least before I get into this, my definition of a contender would be someone who could currently beat a top seed in a playoff series. And my definition of pretender would probably be someone who, you know, couldn't break through, I guess the, the barometer being the semifinals of the conference playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so getting right into it, uh, the Suns, to me that they are contenders right now. And I don't, I wouldn't say they are among necessarily the West elite, but I think they have the juice and the talent to potentially be the nuggets, I guess, of the 2021 season, how the nuggets, uh, you know, upset the Clippers in the playoffs. In the okay. They're obviously very, very different circumstances, but you know, this Phoenix Suns team, they are really coming together. They're really starting to blossom uh, as especially, I think a defensive unit, I think we always knew they were going to have an explosive offense, especially with the addition of Chris Paul, a guy like Devin Booker. I mean, he's still so young and he only seems like he's getting yeah. better. He's shooting excellent this season. He's been firepower for them on offense and he hasn't had to shoulder the load as much in terms of creating the offense. Now that they have Chris Paul in there and Jay Crowder, you know, these guys who can really mix up the scheme a little bit for Monty Williams and that Phoenix Suns team. I like their ability to kind of surprise someone in the playoffs this year and uh, really, you know, give them a run for their money, pushing a series to six or seven playoff games. Also, I think this year, something that's really come along nicely is their ability to communicate and be on the same page on defense. Because I think last year, something that was really holding them back was the ability of guys like DeAndre Aiden, um, Kyle Bridges, uh, you know, getting on the same page with guys like Booker and, you know, Cam Johnson. uh, And now it has them as the number four team in the NBA by defense in terms of points surrendered. And that goes a long way when you're playing in a division with the Clippers and the Lakers, two of arguably the top teams in the NBA. So the fact that, you know, they've held their own against some of the better teams, uh, mm-hmm. I think that is a good sign toward the future in terms of, you know, how extraordinarily unpredictable the West playoffs can be because you don't know when a favorite like the Clippers is going to totally blow it. So right. I like the Suns as contenders currently, but, you know, they got to they gotta shore up uh, some of these kind of uh, shortcomings late in games because they did blow a big lead to the Nets the other day. I will say that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would call them, at least in my view, full blown contenders just yet, just because like you were saying, like with the West, they're still, I mean, any, any conference with LeBron in it, it's tough to put really anybody in that same class of, you know, just like bona fide successful teams. But I think they, the Suns have a ton of upside. So I, not that they're pretenders necessarily, but I think they're like somewhere in between. And if they can continue playing the way that they are, they can sort of make that leap, like you were saying, like the Nuggets did last year and be one of those top teams in the Western Conference. But just going back to what you were saying about Devin Booker too, one thing that's really exciting to me uh, with Phoenix is that they finally have put some real pieces around Devin Booker. He's still so young. And I mean, the, the Suns, have been kind of a laughing stock of the league for the past at least for Booker's entire career. I, they haven't made the playoffs since the 2009-2010 season That's just ridiculous. in general, which is pretty rough. I mean, of course, you can kind of give them a pass just because of how how strong the Western Conference has been for the last 10 or so years. But still, 
now that you finally have a bunch of pieces and young pieces around Devin Booker, of course, Chris Paul and, and guys like him and J, uh, Jay Crowder are, are more so veterans, obviously, but uh, also, you know, uh, Bridges, Aiton, Johnson, like these are all guys that are still super, super young, like our age or younger with tons of upside. <laughs> and you got to think they're only going to continue to improve, especially with a guy like Chris Paul at the helm and being able to sort of take them under their his wing, you know? So I think if they can continue to stay healthy and play the way they're playing, sure, I'll give them uh, the contender sort of patch and seal of approval because at the end of the day, having more than two options in the NBA for scoring and for solid contributions yeah, for sure. on both ends of the floor, that's the real key. I mean, that yeah. you look at a lot of teams and they really only have like two super like solid players on each end of the floor and the Suns seems like the Suns seem like they've eclipsed that a little bit and and going back to just my initial point with the youth that they have combined with their solid core of veterans too I mean I think that their whole roster is really exciting and and I think they're on the right trajectory right now of course to say that they're still in the same league as you know the Lakers the Clippers uh, even the Warriors, I mean, obviously the Warriors haven't been the Warriors of years past this year, but there's still, I mean, Steph Curry always gives you a chance. And then, yeah. you know, like the Jazz are, are, are looking electric right now. Other than those teams, like the Suns are probably the best team in the Western Conference, in my opinion, right now. And, and I think that uh, all signs are pointing to them continuing to improve as we get deeper and deeper into this NBA season. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our next NBA team we're going to analyze here. My Boston Celtics, Ethan. Oh, this has been fucking brutal. Okay, so I I've been watching these games. With my dad, you know, we're we're a big Celtics house over here. You know, we're in the minority in Los Angeles because right going against the grain a little bit. But this team has been brutal to watch lately. Even though they're they're not necessarily like playing bad. Like they're in the playoff picture in the East very firmly, and it, it yep. would take a lot for them to not make the playoffs in the East. So, um, not necessarily. Uh, like concern with them in that regard, but they're only 14 and 14. And when they had enormous expectations for this season, it's been tough, man. It's just so clear, you know, what this team is missing and where the weaknesses are. One, yeah. Kemba Walker is, is simply a liability as an NBA player at the moment. I'm going to read yeah. off some of his recent uh, performances in terms of like shooting and field goal percentage, Ethan. So that, b- bear with me here. All right. Against the Suns, this team who we're just talking about, the Suns beat the Celtics by nine points uh, a couple weeks ago. Walker went four of twenty from the floor shooting Oof. against the Lakers in a in a very tough loss that we really shouldn't have surrendered. You know, by only one point, he went one of twelve from the field. One shot he made in that game, and then against the Jazz a couple weeks ago. He went two of 12, okay? These are all bad losses that the Celtics have suffered a lot because of Walker's offensive ineptitude. And the reason, in my opinion, he's been so atrocious offensively is because, one, he doesn't work as a tra- as a traditional kind of Kemba Walker who we've seen as a scorer, like in mm-hmm. Charlotte. He doesn't mesh as well with the Brown and Tatum kind of offensive scheme that Smart has now devised for the Celtics Walker just is is not what they need out of a point guard right now. And you couple that with the lack of a, you know, scoring center where, you know, Walker could really spread the ball out and then, you know, dish out 
assists to guys and not have to, you know, take so many shots. It's just not a good situation for him right now in the Celtics and something's got to change, you know, whether the C's trade for a center, be it like John Collins, Andre Drummond, LaMarcus Aldridge. I think those are the best options out there. I'm not sure (laughs) how uh, willing (laughs) Ainge is going to be to give up the kind of capital that the teams are demanding for these kind of players. Right. They really are on the trading block and they're there for the taking for the Celtics. So I'm going to say that they're pretenders right now, just because I haven't seen, uh, you know, elite caliber coordination and synergy between their stars, between Brown, Tatum, and Walker, especially with Walker being, you know, so out of whack right now. However, mm-hmm. I will say uh, once Marcus Smart comes back, this team is going to take on a whole different profile. So uh, contenders right now, but got to see how they all kind of coordinate with each other once they're at full health in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think with the East, it's a little bit easier to sort of uh, make a make a decision between contender or a pretender just in the sense that it's so top-heavy, you know, and it has been for years. I mean, there's always like three teams in the East that are really – at least seem like they're really, really legit. I mean, right now it's the Nets, the Sixers, and, and Milwaukee. Um, and the Celtics just have fallen off from that – uh, sort of Mount Rushmore that they were on last year of the Eastern Conference. And, and you know, I, I like what you were saying about Kemba Walker, as much as it pains me for my UConn boy to, to uh-huh. be struggling, you know, I mean, he's, I think he is definitely starting to show his age a little bit. I mean, he's been around for a while and, and he can't be the guy that's leaned on whatsoever uh, for a team to really be successful at this point in his career. However, the one thing that the Celtics do have going for them is the play that you were talking about with Tatum and uh, and Jalen Brown. I mean, both guys have just been electric, averaging both of them, I think, 26 points per game or just slightly under that. They're both leading the team in uh, – in player efficiency rating too, I think, I mean, they, they are just both superstars in the making and still so young that again, it's a similar situation with the Suns where they still do have the upside there. And it's just a question of, will they be able to get it together and figure out? Cause like you were saying, are they out of the playoff picture? Not at all. And realistically, they're going to probably be a top four or five team once it's all said and done at the end of this season. However, Right now, I just don't think they're playing anywhere near the level yeah, to no. be able to beat one of those yeah. top three teams I mentioned in the East. And and again, you know, could that change? Of course, like you said, they're going to be getting Marcus Smart back. That's huge. I mean, he's been an integral piece of of what the C's want to do with that uh, entire team and that starting lineup. Uh, you know, for the past couple years, but but still, I'm just for right now, I'm going to say that they're pretenders, but they maybe could uh, turn into somewhat of contenders. But again, I I just don't think that uh, barring something absurd happening, you know, some crazy change of heart like Kembo or or whatever, I don't think they have what it takes to get into that upper echelon of Eastern Conference teams, at least where they stand in the season uh, so far. Yeah, man, it's so fucking annoying to watch these, like... Yeah, it's got to be rough. I mean, especially with the East being as wide open as it is, it's got to be kind of rough that they're currently sitting at 500 record. And and the thing... and. The thing for me is they they get these opportunities against soft Western Conference teams like the Spurs and the fucking Kings, and they can't even get those wins? Like, come on. All right, moving on to our final NBA team we're given for you guys, the Indiana Pacers, Ethan. 
They're currently 15 and 14, right above the Celtics there in the Eastern Conference. Uh, in your mm-hmm. opinion, from what you've seen so far, are they contenders or pretenders? Yeah, you know, I think that they're sort of on the flip side of the Celtics in that they're slightly overachieving compared to what their preseason expectations would have been. Because, of course, you know, going into this season, you're not going to say, oh, the Pacers are going to be one of the top teams in the East. They have a solid rotation, no doubt. But do they have what it takes to be, you know, on the same level of the Sixers or Milwaukee or whatever? No. However, I think they're playing really competitive basketball right now. I mean, I think they have a really solid and deep rotation of a lot of contributing players. Of course uh, you're going to have the main guys like, like Sabonis, Malcolm Brogdon, who's just been a revelation since he got to Indiana. Um, Also miles Turner has played really well. I mean, all these guys have been electric, but, but then you, you also traded away Oladipo who, even though he has been plagued with injuries for much of his career, when he's healthy, I, I mean, at least in my opinion, he's one of the most underrated players in basketball, just the way that he has that the ability he has to take over a game in in both uh, sort of ways, you know, offensively, he's going to make shots. He can drive hard to the rim and finish. That's huge. And then defensively, I think he's a very underrated defender too. They don't have him anymore. And um, you know, that TJ Warren, he's been hurt for, for Indiana as well. Karis LeVert, of course, it seems like he's going to be probably out for the whole season. There's been some rumblings that he might be able to return late, but again, he's dealing with, with that uh, that benign mass or whatever it was that he had yeah. to have surgically removed. They don't really know what's going on with him just yet. But if they could get those two guys back in any capacity and able to you know play at, at even a portion of the level that they were playing at prior to the injuries – that's just going to make them even even better, you know, and and coupling that with the already solid rotation that they have, I think that they could at least finish top four where they are right now in the East, and nobody would be surprised. I mean, I think they're they're head and shoulders above all the other teams in the East, and it's really just a question of you know will they be able to at least contend in a play, in a seven game playoff series with Brooklyn, for example, right, or one of those teams, you know. So I'm gonna say that they're contenders ish right now and if they can get those guys back even just one of them uh and playing at a high level then i think that they could maybe make the leap and have a chance to beat one of those other teams in a seven game series but i'll I'll lean contenders for right now i I like what indiana's got going on i think all signs are pointing to them continuing to improve yeah well you say you're leaning contenders i am all in on the indiana pacers i fully think that they could play a playoff spoiler to one of these, uh, you know, kind of top teams in the East. If we're, if, you know, we're starting to look at, uh, you know, Philadelphia and Brooklyn really setting themselves apart at the top of the East. I think that, you know, you mentioned all these great things that the Pacers have going on, right? Like Brogdon and Sabonis are both playing at all-star levels this season. You know, they are really stimulating the offense and firing this team up because even though they're only a game over 500, you know, they're playing, they're playing in great form and the wins that they secure are, you know, well constructed game plans and just well sustained efforts by the team mm-hmm. as an entire union unit. You know, a guy like DeMontis Sabonis, I think he's among the most underrated players in the entire league. Absolute fucking unit. On Wednesday, he had a 36 point, 17 rebound, 10 assist explosion, which is a yep. stat line that you would fucking expect from a guy like Luka Doncic, but yeah, Sabonis is really starting to lead this team and, you know, become uh, a leader for them on the court. 
now that uh, they got Brogdon healthy, you know, Turner's fully healthy. He's a defensive player of the year candidate, Miles Turner, number one in the NBA with 3.6 blocks a game. He's been slept on for a while. I mean, he led the, led the league in blocks in 2019 at, when he was 22 years old. That's yeah. so impressive. So these young studs are all really starting to coalesce in terms of starting to hit their stride as being, you know, NBA stars, you know, not just good players, not just above average guys for a, a you know, playoff team in the Eastern Conference. I think Brogdon and Sabonis are really affirming themselves as stars in this league. And I'm really excited to see, you know, the way this team takes shape and develops once TJ Warren returns. I'm personally not, I'm not positive about his timetable, but he was so electric for them in the bubble and they were so impressive exactly. in the bubble, uh, you know, as when they were fully healthy. So once Warren gets back, you know, I'm so excited to see the way they're about to come together offensively because Warren, when he's on, is absolutely money. He can shoot the lights out. He had like a 53-point game, I think, uh, yep. you know, the first game back in the bubble, which was absolutely insane. I don't think people give TJ Warren enough credit because they meme him for beefing with Jimmy Butler and wanting to throw hands every time they play. Uh, anyways, uh, I think the Pacers are certainly contenders, and I think the Pacers could play spoilers to – some of these teams in the East, like the Sixers, Nets, Celtics, Bucks, who have championship aspirations. So watch out for Indiana. Yeah, I like that. I mean, look, I'm always I'm always one to root for an underdog. So if they could actually, you know, be a legitimate spoiler for any of these teams, then yeah, I'm all in on the Pacers too. Of course, we still have a ton of the season left to go and and shit can change as we know. But I love the way they look right now. And and like I said, I think they're only going to get better as the season sort of uh, moves on. But enough NBA talk for today. Let's keep it rolling right into everybody's favorite segment, the wager wire. Theo, why don't you start us off with your first uh, betting pick sure. of the week? All right. So my first wager this week, we're going with another golf bet. I'm really enjoying actually doing this very esoteric research into what it's like to try to gain an edge on the book in regards to PGA. So last week, I took Molinari and Streelman to make the top 10. Molinari was a total botch. He didn't even fucking come close. Streelman was in the top 10 all of fucking Sunday. Literally got to the 17th hole. He was looking at like a fourth or third place finish. You know, great payout for this guy. Uh, great day at the office. But he fucking double bogey 17 to drop down to Ugh. 13th. So that fucking boned me at the end. I got so close to Streelman. Anyways, we're not going to let that dim our shine. I'm keeping the energy here with some golf bets. I'm not taking some, not taking anything necessarily specific. Here are just some guys with long odds who I like to have success this weekend by the end. I'm taking Patrick Cantlay, plus 1,400. Brooks Kepka 2,200. And Joaquin Neiman, right. plus 5,000. So uh, kind of getting three guys from across the board in this one. Uh, Cantlay for me is is the bet. I think he is the best play of all these guys. He's been in an impressive period of sustained excellence. I think if you're looking at anyone right now on the PGA Tour who has strung together most recently the the strongest performances with you know varying fields and uh, varying conditions, Cantlay is the guy. He won the Zozo tournament already in Thousand Oaks, California this season, so he's already got a mm -hmm. win on his uh, resume there. And he's had a bunch of T3 and second place finishes recently. You know, he was ball striking as well as anyone in the field last week at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Uh, and I think the biggest factor why I'm liking Cantlay today, or excuse me, in to this weekend in this tournament is because he played for UCLA. 
So not only is he experiencing sustained excellence right now, he has a lot of familiarity with Riviera Country Club in Pacific Palisades, California, only 20 minutes away from where I'm sitting right now. So I like Cantlay to at least finish top five, if not win the whole thing this weekend. Going to Kepka now, uh, I think he's just a guy who it's with any kind of inkling or desire to bet on him. You got to act on that. You know, that's my degen Theo, uh, the sports better coming out because he's, I think going to go on a tear again this year. He already got a win on the book uh, a couple of yep. weeks ago with an absolutely insane storm toward the end of the waste management open in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago, absolutely electric 65 on Sunday to come back from down five strokes starting the day against a very formidable field guys mm. with season experience like Jordan Spieth and Xander Shoffley. So I like Kepka to continue his strong performance against a strong field this week in the Genesis. And then finally, Joaquin Neiman, uh, he's been on a four week break. So I think that the odds are way deflated for him right now, because if this tournament was coming a month ago from now, walking where Joaquin Neiman was coming off of two consecutive straight, uh, Tight second place finishes in Hawaii, his odds would be half of what his odds were going into this one. It was plus yeah. 5,000. So that's ridiculously deflated for Neiman. Uh, he's a guy who's had a lot of experience against, like I kind of said, stronger fields because we're getting some of the best of the best in the PGA Tour this week. But Neiman is such an impressive ball striker and does not back down. You know, this uh, kind of scrawny 22-year-old does not get phased even when guys like Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas – can't like Kepka are in the field competing. So I like these three guys to have success this weekend at the Genesis Invitational. I'm going tomorrow. I, I'm waking up at the crack of dawn and I'm going to try and get a fucking lawn chair seat outside the six hole. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know how that goes. Ethan. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I mean, you remember my, my pick from, I think a couple weeks ago where I said Kepka is going to win a major this year. So I'm definitely all in on Kepka too. I love that pick. And I think that those are very good value odds at plus 2,200. Um, with my first wager pick, I'm going to be going with a soccer future actually. I mean, obviously champions league uh, play resumed uh, last week for all these teams, you know, they're in the round of 16 now. Um, for this one, I'm, I'm taking PSG plus 500 to win the entire Champions League. And I know, okay. uh, of course, everybody's going to say, oh, but Neymar is hurt. Oh, but Di Maria is not playing, blah, 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 blah. Doesn't matter. Just Mbappe's hat trick in their 4-1 to victory against Barca this past week was all the proof I needed. I mean, he looks like the best player on the planet right now. He is absolutely electric. He carried them past Barcelona in such convincing fashion. I mean, if as long as he's playing, I think it's so difficult to pick against PSG, even without Neymar and Di Maria, like I mentioned. Um, also, you know, I think the fact that, uh, they were the, you know, runner up in champions league a year ago, they lost obviously one nil to, to Bayern in the final that PSG, they're no slouch by any stretch of the imagination. And while everybody likes to sort of point to Bayern and then, you know, uh, whoever might still be alive, uh, Messi or, or Ronaldo or one of the Prem teams, 
for the Champions League. I think PSG is kind of flying under the radar a little bit, and they really made a big statement against Barcelona. And again, just as long as Mbappe is playing and healthy, I think he gives them such an edge that just, quite frankly, no other team has because nobody has a player that is quite like Kylian Mbappe. Who is also as young and as fast as he is. So I really like the plus 500 odds to win the Champions League. I don't think that that is out of the question whatsoever. Of course, they still have a ways to go. But I mean, if if we're going to sort of judge that based on their most recent performance against Barcelona, I think that that is a really tough uh, tough bet to sort of make a case against. So give me PSG yeah. plus 500 Champions League champions 2021. Okay, yeah, that's that's ambitious. I, it's you know, PSG is a sensational team. I think. Yeah. You know, I I I support the lay. I'm not sure I'd have the stones to click confirm bet on that one, but they looked dominant against Barcelona. Anyone who watched the game knows Mbappe is so good. It's actually stupid. Like it's yeah. like watching a video game, except you can't even do that stuff when you're playing FIFA. Like he's better than the video games. He's absolutely absurd. I mean, Busquets and PK were looking like clowns out there. Anyways, my second wager for this week, this is a unique one. And, you know, I I feel very strongly about this one that I think Steph Curry at this point in time is the best bet to win MVP in the NBA this season. Uh, Now, let me let me break it down for you here, because NBA MVP odds making and, and betting exists very uniquely compared to kind of other wagers you can make in in the NBA. And I think sports in general, I think it's really unique in the sense that there's a real edge to gain in betting this award because the handicappers have a lot of trouble assessing the media hype that tends to decide this award. I think mm-hmm. the NBA MVP, like, of course, LeBron could get it every year, right? Like LeBron is going and to- And he should. As he should. And I would have no gripes with that, you know, if he stacked up shit tons of MVP hardware. But- it's so interesting in the sense that there's always, you know, a almost like emotionally resonant narrative that describes uh, kind of what makes an MVP, right? Like there is always this notion that the MVP is the guy who is carrying an undue load for his team and is almost centrally the only reason why they are winning. I think especially the past couple of years, really starting with Russell Westbrook, it's now become something where it's like, almost always distinctly a scorer, someone who, you know, takes a lot of shots uh, for their team, you know, is has incredibly high usage rate as opposed to someone who is perhaps, you know, the most valuable in the, in the sense that like they're distributing the ball the most for their team and, and facilitating winning the most. I think that the narrative with NBA MVP is like the team is almost exclusively winning because of this guy. And I think you can't really argue against Curry, you know, fitting that mold uh, as we stand here currently in February yeah. 2021, I mean, you don't need to tell me that. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that Steph Curry is a bucket getter, okay? And, and <laughs> when he is healthy, he is perhaps the most mismatch offensive weapon that there is in the entire sport. And this season, that theme is only continuing to be validated game by game for the Warriors his numbers are more similar this year, actually, than you'd think to his prolific 2016 season, a season that I think really exists in a category of its own in terms of uh, prolific production. Uh, but this year, you know, he's also averaging 30 points per game and around 44% from three-point percentage. 
in February alone, February 2021 alone, he's averaging 35 points per game. And the more wins that the Warriors pile up as they kind of uh, fight for playoff uh, positioning, they're currently, I think, like the seventh or sixth seed in the West. Uh, the more wins that they stack up and the more national TV exposure that Curry gets, I think the more momentum that this narrative builds. So I really like this bet at the odds around like plus 900, plus 1,000, plus uh, 1,100, because I think there's still a lot more to materialize in terms of the NBA narratives this season. But I think Steph Curry right now, there is such a distinct edge to gain uh, for this award uh, for Chef Curry himself. Yeah, I like that. I, I like what you brought up too about just how much of an impact the media does have on the NBA MVP because it's very real and very unique, like you were saying, compared to all the other sports. So yeah, I mean, Steph Curry, you know, he's a baller. That's no secret, of course. So I, yeah, I like that pick a lot. Um, moving on to my second wager wire pick, I'm going to go with a hockey wager here. I'm going to take the abs minus 120 uh, against the Vegas Golden Knights on Saturday at three. Um, and, you know, of course, this is, again, quite a toss-up. I mean, it's the two top teams in their division by far, I think. I don't think anybody is even close in terms of just, like, pure yeah. skill and realistic cup aspirations. But the one edge I think that the Avs now have is that McKinnon's finally back. I mean, he scored in his first game back, which was the second of four games that uh, the Avalanche are playing in a row against Vegas. He scored a goal, the first goal of the game uh, in that one. You know, this will be the third of the fourth straight games against one another. And it's a great goaltender matchup, too, is the other thing. I mean, you have Grubauer and Fleury, who are, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Fleury is first and Grubauer is second in save percentage in the league. Wow. Uh, you know what you, yeah, you know what you're getting with both these guys. They've been out of their minds the entire year. But I, I think McKinnon back along with, you know, the young guys that have really stepped up as primarily Kale McCarr for Colorado but also, you know, Landis Cog and these other guys. I mean, I think they just have enough in their forecheck to give them a little bit of an edge. Uh, and and I really think that Colorado, this could be the year that they could legitimately win a Stanley Cup if they can still if they can stay healthy. And the first step to doing that is dominating or, or at least beating the best teams in your division this year. And that best team is Vegas. So I really like uh, the Avalanche's chance here. I, they've already beaten Vegas recently. And I think that they can do it again. So give me them minus 120 uh, Saturday at 3 o'clock. Okay. Love that shit. That's a, that's a good – McKinnon's just such a beauty. I mean, he's like – you can tell how different and how much more confident they are with the forecheck when he's on the ice versus when he was hurt. Like, they just look like a different yeah. team almost, even though they're still really solid. I mean, he's just – he's honestly, I think, the second-best player in the league right now behind uh, – Austin Matthews and, and Connor McDavid. So I guess the third best, but those two guys are like one a and one B right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't argue with you there that when McKinnon is on the ice, it seems like he's even bringing out the best of guys like Landis Cog and Kadri. Uh, anyways, for my right. final NHL or excuse me, my final wager wire, I'm sticking with the NHL is what I meant to say. Um, taking the Toronto Maple Leafs. Minus 110 against the Can Montreal Canadiens uh, on Saturday. I just – minus 110 is the opening line that, that I found, and I think that they should be way bigger favorites in this one, the Toronto Maple Leafs. This is a team who is statistically the best in the NHL right now, and they're starting to come mm -hmm. together in a really impressive way after uh, just a truly horrible, horrible game, something that we'll uh, highlight in the next segment. Um, but they've – 
been fueled by a bad loss to win two straight games. And it set them <laughs> at a 13 and three and two mark. But if you kind of consider what the record of 13 and three means, I, that like if an NFL team is a 13 and three season, obviously, you know, I'm I, before I go any further, you know, different sports, of course, NFL, NHL. But when you consider that a 13 and three NFL team is usually like a, a Super Bowl contender or uh, like automatic Super Bowl bid at times, yeah, the Maple yeah. Leafs aren't playing sensationally. And I think it's time for us to start considering the Maple Leafs uh, in that category of the top f- three or four teams in the NHL. And without a doubt, the best team in the North. You know, Marner and Matthews, one of the best lines in the NHL. These are two guys who are playing at, you know, heart trophy levels right now, especially Marner. I think Marner, you know, is going to have a good shot to win that award by the end of the season. Then you got Mm -hmm. the talent and experience to back it up. Guys like Nylander, Tavares, Thornton, Spezza. Like, this is a team well built for, you know, sustained dominance this season. And while the Canadians are a good team, I would be surprised if they didn't get in that playoff picture from the North division. I think they're going to start to experience some regression from their early season dominance. What's really set them at the record that they currently have. I think it's something like nine and and four. Uh, So perhaps Mm -hmm. that's what's deflating the Maple Leafs money line odds in this game. And I'm going to take that opportunity. uh, Give me the Maple Leafs minus 110 against the Montreal Canadiens to start to set themselves apart as Stanley Cup faves. Yeah, I love that. I mean, yeah, like you said, Matthews and Martin, they're just so fun to watch. So definitely doesn't hurt betting on those guys. Uh, For my last pick, I'm going to move into the realm of college basketball a little bit. Of course, we haven't really spoken that much about college basketball, except in these smaller segments like the wager wire, especially. But, you know, as we get closer and closer to the conference tournaments and then eventually March Madness, we'll, we'll really start to break it down for you guys. But just for right now, I'm going to stick to one game, a marquee Sunday matchup. We have number three, Michigan, taking on number four, Ohio State. And I'm going to take Ohio State minus two and a half in this game. And here's why. Of course, Michigan is great. They have one loss this year. You know, they haven't played in a while, but they're still a really, really solid team. However, I'm of the sort of school of thought that I think Ohio State is the best team in the Big Ten and in a very, very competitive Big Ten, probably the most we've seen it at least in the last 10 years, maybe ever. I mean, there are a lot of good teams, but I think Ohio State is the best. And, uh, you know, Michigan, they've only played twice since January 22nd. Of course, they won both those games. They beat Wisconsin, who I think Wisconsin's overrated. Of course, you can debate me and make make a case for that, but I don't think that they're that good. And then they beat Rutgers, who I do actually think is a little underrated. They're pretty good. But still, Ohio State, they've won seven straight games in their Big Ten play, including two wins against top 10 teams in Wisconsin, which was a decisive 12 point victory. And then they beat Iowa also by four, uh, I think like two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. I mean, Ohio state is a really, really, really legit team and behind uh, their, their combo of EJ Liddell, who's been electric Dwayne Washington, Jr. Those are their top two scores. CJ Walker has been a great facilitator for them when he's playing. I mean, they have a ton of big contributors. The list goes on and on. And I think they really do have what it takes to, to, you know, pull out a big victory in this game that is obviously going to have major seeding implications as we're getting closer and closer to March Madness, you know, and the bracketology really starts to sort of uh, 
batting it down the hatches, if you will, and you can really tell, you know, who's going to be a, a top four seed, who's not going to be, you know, and then we start to see who they're going to be playing to. I think Ohio State has a chance to make a real statement here and really affirm themselves as the best team in the Big Ten. And and while Michigan's good, like I said, I just don't think that they're as good as people are realizing. And also the fact that they've only played two games in like the last month, basically that's not doing them any favors while and over the course of that time, Ohio state hasn't even lost. So give me Ohio state minus two and a half in a game that I think will be close, but I think Ohio state pulls away with uh, free throws towards the end. But I I just love that line so much. I think Ohio state is honestly one of the best teams in the nation. And I think they're going to prove it this weekend to everybody. Yeah, I think with uh, the Buckeyes-Wolverines rivalry, you know, it, the games are always going to be uh, tighter than, than people expect, but that's that's a good uh, edge you're kind of gaining there with Michigan not having played much lately. Uh, Ethan, let's switch gears now to some of our brief classic segments here. going to start with pure cap, no cap. going to switch up the vibes a little bit because uh, a big development in the NFL this past week, of course, the Eagles trading 2016 number two overall pick Carson Wentz to the Indianapolis Colts. The Colts now have their bona fide starter at quarterback since Rivers has retired. So Ethan, pure cap or no cap, the Colts made the right move trading for Carson Wentz. I'm going to say no cap. And of course, you know, I mean, you can go back and and re-listen to all the episodes during the football season that we recorded where I was just saying how bad Wentz was, you know, how how he just doesn't look like himself, how he got benched, how he's the worst QB in the league, yada, yada, yada. And I don't necessarily disagree with all of those. However, I think the Colts, I mean, he's still a former MVP. I think the Colts are looking at that more so than this season, just because the Eagles in general were in such shambles. And the fact that they only gave up two picks, neither of which was even a first rounder, right? I mean, the, the conditional second round could become a first rounder if Wentz plays 75% of the snaps or 70% of the snaps or something and the Colts make the playoffs. So it probably will happen, but even still, I, I think that the, the Colts are in the position right now to be one of the best teams in the AFC. I mean, we saw it already last year with Rivers. Obviously, they, they lost to the Bills, but they still played really well. They have one of the best defensive units in the league. They have a really solid offensive line with a good run game. Jonathan Taylor obviously really broke out for them uh, in the latter half of the season. And also, you know, you have – you have solid receivers. Uh, T.Y. Hilton got back to his usual tricks of you know scoring touchdowns, catching big passes down the stretch for them, and then Michael Pittman too. I mean, he's obviously it was only a rookie this year, but he seems like he could be a legit contributor for the Colts, uh, you know, in the future. And I think with all that in mind, it kind of makes sense for the Colts here to be taking a flyer on Wentz, who's coming off by far his worst season as a pro. It's not even close. And you just got to hope that he returns to even, you know, 60% of what he was during that MVP season. Cause if he can do that, I mean, you're looking at, I think maybe the best team top to bottom in the entire AFC, you know, just, they really have no weaknesses as it is except quarterback. obviously the question mark, even with Wentz, but if he can, if he can, uh, 
get back to that level, you know, making smart plays, not throwing interceptions, not turning the ball over, then I think the Colts made a really smart move here and they're budgeting uh, not just for this season, but for the future. I mean, of course, Wentz does cost a shit ton of money and that's going to be something they're going to have to deal with. But I think they're one of the teams that is in win now mode more so than most, at least in the AFC. And Wentz is only going to help that, assuming he can at least get back to partial his partial self in terms of that MVP season. So I'm going to say no cap here, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Theo, because obviously this is a pretty polarizing move uh, for the Colts to make and for the NFL to be shaking up, you know, a guy that was an MVP uh, and candidate and winner, you know, in the last four years. Yeah, I'm actually going to disagree with you here. And I'm going to say that it's pure cap that I think the Colts made the wrong move trading for Carson Wentz here. I don't think that Wentz is necessarily like the biggest bum. Like I, I'm, I'm about to shit on him a little bit, but just to preface it, like I don't think like he's not a starting caliber quarterback in the NFL. The reason I really dislike this move is because one, the Colts had an opportunity to make a almost Super Bowl winning offseason acquisition at the quarterback position because of the team that they already have in place. You mentioned uh, just kind of the young, skilled players, these blue chips that they have between you know Michael Pittman and Jonathan Taylor. They have the sensational offensive line. They have the sensational defense, especially that rush defense. And really, the quarterback position was where they had a golden opportunity to capitalize and get that Super Bowl winning piece by going after a guy like Deshaun Watson or Matthew Stafford. Obviously, he's off the board, or even Russell Wilson aggressively. You know, I think this was the kind of offseason that a team that could make that Super Bowl winning edge at the quarterback position, like they they could have done that. And the Colts, honestly, in my opinion, settled for someone like Wentz, where it was just going to be, you know, less of a hassle to acquire the guy. But Wentz didn't earn this opportunity. Okay. Like I, of, of course, like I could be, you know, be proven wrong, but I think right now he's just not any remote improvement over a guy like Phillip rivers. What Wentz showed this season, especially against uh, the kind of weak opposition that he was facing in the NFC East and all these, you know, games that the Eagles coughed up and the talent, the other talent, you know, that they had on defense and, and, you know, Miles Sanders. And I don't know, I just, I just, it doesn't sit right with me that Carson Wentz, just the way he played this year is now getting rewarded with an even, you know, better situation. Like who knows he might be able to rediscover the form that Reich had him playing in in 2017. Also, by the way, he, he finished second MVP that year. I believe Tom Brady, uh, if you've heard of the well, guy. Yeah, but he was still playing at an MVP right. level that year. I mean, right. he had, what, th- over 30 touchdowns and, like, six interceptions, so. Yeah, no, he's – I'm not – that's not to say that he can reach that potential. I just think right now, like, I was so high on the Colts, their ability to, you know, make that one acquisition that would make them the caliber of the Chiefs or Bills in the AFC. But with this, I'm just, I, I'm just not sold yet, you know. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, look, am I, I'm not a hundred percent sold necessarily, but again, I'm also not a Colts fan, so I don't really care that much. I think if you're a Colts fan, you're a little more apprehensive just because it's like, okay, I mean, this guy had as many, he had more turnovers last year than he had touchdown passes. I mean, that's not good. And he got benched <laughs> for a rookie who was also not good and ended up getting benched for somebody even worse, even though of course that was a little bit, uh, a little bit iffy as it was, but yeah, you know, I just think if you're the Colts, you kind of don't want to give up 
you want to give up as little as possible to try to retain, you know, that solid core that you have and that, that AFC championship level core that you have, quite frankly. And I think the only way uh, to do that would have been to get a guy like Wentz, because of course, all these other guys that you mentioned, are they better options? No doubt. Even Stafford would have been, but look at what the Rams had to give up for Stafford. I mean, that is like 20 times the amount that the Colts had to give up for Wentz. So I think, to take a flyer on a guy who had played at an MVP caliber level not too many years ago. And also, you know, I mean, he had from 2017, 2018 and 2019, those three seasons, he only had seven interceptions in e- like each of those three seasons with 20 plus touchdowns. I mean, those are solid numbers. And I think you're looking for him to hopefully get back to that with just a better team and a better situation around him and especially a better offensive line. Again, all that is yet to be seen, but for right now, I I'll still see, lean no cap. I just think that, it was not a bad move for the Colts to make. And of course, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but you know, you got, you got to try to make moves and take risks if you want to win a Super Bowl, especially with some of these other top dogs, like the chiefs and like the bills who you know, are going to be really solid. I mean, you got to try to give yourself a little bit of an edge. And I think if you can get Wentz back to where he was playing, he could give you that edge. But again, we need to see what happens. We're still, it's still February. We have a long way away from OTAs, let alone the start of the season. But as of right now, I do not dislike the move. And I think Colts fans should not be as upset as they might be just because Wentz was so bad. All right, let's move on to our final segment. This episode, Ethan, we're turning back the time machine uh, 10 years. So we got a nice little round number here, a 10 year anniversary February 20th, 2011, the NBA All-Star Game occurred. Western Conference won 148 to 143. Kobe Bryant winning his fourth All-Star Game MVP, the final one of his career. Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm the kind of guy who, like, I was very much – I lived for the All-Star Games as a kid, you know, and this was one that I remember very fondly just because it was, like, all the classic kind of goats from our childhood competing in this one. You know, the Dirks of the world, the LeBrons, the Dwayne mm-hmm. Wades. Uh, Nash may have even been in there. And then some of the – like, Chris Paul was coming up and starting to be amazing. Blake Griffin. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. When you think of uh, the NBA All-Star Game, not even necessarily this one, Ethan, what kind of comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, you think you generally don't attribute it to being like a a close game necessarily. It's generally like just, you know, a bunch of dunks, people throwing lobs, taking crazy shots. But this game was actually, I mean, obviously it was only a five point victory by the Western Conference. And I, I don't remember a ton of specifics from this game, but just looking back at the box score and sort of the way that the game progressed, it seems like it was a lot more competitive of an all star game than most generally are. And it's uh, again, just going back to the Kobe point, you know, to have 37 points, 14 rebounds, it just is yet again, another instance of how, how great of a player he was and how dominant he was and what, what an icon he was for the game. You know, I mean, the all-star game is something that so many fans watch just because it's the best of the best coming together to showcase all their skills and all the crazy things they can do. And Kobe was right there at the top when he was playing. I mean, of course, rest in peace. It's been just over a year since he passed away tragically, but Kobe Bryant, I mean, he's one of the greatest of all time. Obviously, I don't think there's really any disputing that at this point. Of course, is he the level of LeBron or Michael Jordan? I mean, some people would say yes. I would say probably not. 
but he's still one of the greatest players of all time. And, and I think this is just a perfect example of, of the impact that he had on the NBA in virtually every facet, whether it was as a humanitarian with all the, you know, charity work and stuff that he does, whether it was him as, you know, sort of a media frenzy of like with the, what the all-star game generally is because there's so much media and fan interaction or whether it was him, you know, winning all the championships that he didn't having the dominant playoff success he had during the course of his career. It's, really just a testament to the greatness that Kobe brought Kobe Bryant embodied uh, throughout his entire career and even beyond. So just shout out to Kobe. I thought it was a, a nice thing for us to mention, especially since we're only yeah. a little bit more than a year uh, removed from his tragic passing. Yeah. And, you know, just about Kobe specifically in the all-star game, I think, you know, we're so familiar like with his legacy, obviously uh, just in the NBA for the actual Lakers, but in the all-star games, of course, they, they are not necessarily uh, on the competition level of regular <laughs> NBA. I think, I think it's safe to say there, but, but he was even a beast in that context. He yep. won three MVPs out of four all-star games from 2007 to 2011. He won the all-star game MVP in 07, 09 and 11. I yeah. put it, putting up 27 or more points in those games. So that just even shows you how among the best of the best in the NBA, Kobe was going to be the alpha male, the dominant scorer, uh, even among fellow Hall of Famers there on the court, averaged 25 points a game in uh, his career over All-Star games. So, you know, that's all to say, I, you know, kind of miss – uh, the all-star games of past, you know, kind of how endearing they were, but hopefully in the future, we're going to get some more competitive all-star games. I think in 2020, uh, we got a good kind of sign there that we're going to start to see some guys leaving it out on the floor a little bit more than they were in the past, you know, kind of jogging mm -hmm. up and down the court last year, there was some exciting kind of defensive action as well. So hopefully we'll get that uh, with the all-star game this month. Anyways, that's going to do it for us. This episode of hot take time machine, uh, Ethan and I happy to bring you guys another week of action uh, Ethan, got any parting words for the listeners this week? Yeah, I mean, I'll just set the scene a little bit for what uh, you guys can all expect from us going forward over the next month or two. Obviously, you know, we're in kind of that lull stage of of sports in general. There's not really a ton going on at this point. But we're going to still keep bringing you guys episodes, breaking down what the state of each of these leagues are. We've also got some massive MMA fights coming up in March that I've mentioned in the past. Most notably, Izzy Adesanya's fighting again. Uh, we've got March Madness in the conference tournaments coming up. We've got a little bit further away the NFL draft and maybe some more stuff shape, uh, shaking out with free agency once that all gets underway we've got the mlb season starting in about what a month and a half is it maybe not even yeah and then we've got the you know the playoff runs for the nba and nhl so we've got plenty of stuff lined up for you guys keep listening thank you for listening and we're excited to bring you guys a lot more uh a lot more excitement going forward yeah thanks everyone for listening and excited to get into some March Madness, baby. Colgate Raiders, we're going for that 13 seed. Watch the fuck out. Let's go, Raiders, baby. We've got some important Patriot League games coming up. Anyways, yes, we do. we'll see you guys next week. Yep, see you guys. Thank you. What's up?